0: Hey everybody, it's David Pluff. welcome to Campaign HQ. Well, we finally made it to September. Uh, we are less than nine weeks away from the presidential election and people in states like North Carolina and others around the country will be voting in a matter of weeks. So it is truly election season. We we don't have election day anymore. We have an election period, and it's intensifying. Uh, My guest today is David Axelrod. Uh, I'm going to talk to David about a lot of what's going on in the campaign. uh, Some things that I would address in my opening. So I'll keep my opening relatively brief because I think uh, we'll get into my thoughts through that conversation. Uh, But I think Joe Biden's event earlier this week, uh, this is Wednesday, so on Monday in in southwestern Pennsylvania, what I I think was a very strong moment for him. I think he continued to make the case against Donald Trump, but also defended himself against some of these outrageous attacks um, from Trump uh, on crime and on support of looting and and violence. Um, I think just as importantly his campaign announced today, they're going to be running a 60-second advertisement all around the country um, in battleground states. Presumably, there'll be digital uh, parts of that as well to just reinforce that message. And that's incredibly important to to remember. I think particularly in today's social media environment, it's like a candidate gives a speech or does something and we assume, oh, great, they did that. Let's move on to the next thing. But most people you care about wouldn't have seen that. And so you really have to be patient and take time. If you've got something you want target voters to hear or to understand— You've got to spend a lot of time and money to reach them. So I think that was really important. Trump, I think, uh, you know, has had a terrible few days. Um, That's going to seem like a partisan comment, but I thought his, uh, which should be the easiest thing of all time, like literally rolling out of bed, his interview with Laura Ingram was a disaster on, on many levels. I think, again, raised questions about his fitness for office. He's increasingly embracing the QAnon view of the world, which, you know, has its growing support, which I think is a problem for our democracy, but it's still a distinct minority. Um, I think his trip to Kenosha was a disaster. Um, you know, now Joe Biden, Joe Biden will be going there uh, on Thursday when this podcast comes out. I think I'm sure they'll handle it much, much better uh, and show that they can heal this country. And so, you know, the campaign's intensified. Uh, I think, uh, you know Joe Biden. Um, and I'll talk to David Oxrod about this, but, you know, does need to be out there just about every day. I mean, voters are starting to pay more attention to this. Um, the media is giving it more coverage, both locally uh, and nationally. People are sharing more about the campaign on social media than they even did. And, you know, this seems like we've been in a four-year election cycle. So uh, I think, um, you know, when I was involved in presidential campaigns, that often meant flying across the country, all the time zones, six events a day, 20 interviews – you know, it's a little bit different now. Uh, so, you know, you're still going to do a lot of interviews and, and work on a lot of creative content off stage. But, you know, you really only have to have like one great event a day uh, that can drive press coverage, and, and you can cut some creative out of that and put Trump on the defensive. So that's the other thing. I think the more aggressive Biden gets out there, um, Trump won't like that. We know that, and it'll throw him off his game. Um, So, you know, I think the other thing I'd say, there's a lot of discussion about polls post-convention. I certainly haven't seen enough of them to render any verdict on it. Um, But what I've seen, you know, would suggest that, you know, Biden's lead is pretty stable. Uh, Again, I'm I'm not going to talk about national polls. They don't matter in the presidential race. But in the battleground states... You know, he's got a consistent lead, Um, you know, of anywhere from four points. There was a poll coming out of Pennsylvania today that showed the race at four, which was some tightening, which we should expect. Pennsylvania is not going to be a 10-point Biden win. Uh, It's going to be relatively close. Um, Other states like, you know, uh, Wisconsin and Arizona and Florida uh, showing a a little bit larger lead. So stability. Uh, And and the important thing is that Biden's number in those battlegrounds is 49, 50, 51, even, even some 52. Uh, And that matters a great deal because even if Biden's winning a state, let's say it's 50 to 44, so a six point lead, the difference between that and a lead where Biden's up 47, 41 could not be more profound uh, because it means he's just at a higher total. Trump has to basically get all the undecideds, has to win the turnout battle decisively and pull voters off Biden. So you know, with Hillary, she had leads in the battlegrounds the entire campaign. But you know they tended to be more like forty six, forty one, or forty five, forty, and because she was kind of the quasi incumbent in that race, uh, that was uh, you know always a source of concern. I know we pay a, a great deal of attention to that in, in both the Obama campaigns. Our lead was kind of immaterial, honestly. It was just um, where was our uh, harder vote number at, and who was undecided, and who were those people? So that's the other thing. I mean, in a race where Biden might be ahead in a battleground fifty forty four. I still think more of that 6% that's not allocated goes to Trump and Biden, but not all of it is. And that matters. So let's say Trump was, would, would get over 60% uh, percent of it, maybe two-thirds of it. You know, that would put him at 48 and then Biden at 52. And it's clear that there's going to be uh, a less third-party voters this time. So to win the presidency, you can't do as Trump did last time, which is win battleground states with 47 or 48 percent of the vote. He's going to have to get, you know, closer to 50. So, you know, I think Biden enters this phase of the campaign in in very good shape. He's got to be aggressive each and every day. He's got to have a really great first debate on September 29th. Conversely, Trump's got to have some way to change the dynamics in this campaign um, so that he's able to uh, arrest Uh, some of Biden's momentum, pull some voters back, a, a tall order for any incumbent, because incumbent presidents traditionally struggle in that first debate for a lot of reasons. And and again, I'll talk to David Axelrod about that. But um, so as you're focused on this campaign, one, circle September 29th, that may be the most important date in the rest of the campaign. I think another important date, and we don't know what it is, is when the decision is made by the Kentucky Attorney General who spoke at the Republican National Convention about whether there's going to be any uh, police officers charged in the killing of Breonna Taylor. If there's not, Uh, There will understandably be a lot of unrest, and we'll see how that affects uh, the campaign and how each candidate deals with it. Obviously, uh, we've got schools reopening, universities and and high schools and grade schools in some states. We're starting to see a real spike in cases. That's going to be a factor. Uh, And then the thing I think that's most in all of our control, because none of us uh, are running for president, (laughs) you know, none of us are, uh, you know, running uh, the pandemic response. But um, we have our ability to reach out to voters and make sure that they are executing properly. And that, again, I've been like a broken record like this, and I'll continue to be because it's so important. Um, We just can't have people who intend to vote to elect Joe Biden and Democratic Senate candidates and Democrats up and down the ballot go through that they've made the decision to vote, and somehow they make a mistake. Mostly that will be because they make a mistake in filling out their absentee ballot. Uh, but they could also get uh, wrong the early vote time and they show up and it's closed and they don't have time to go back or you know they don't properly account for lines on election day and as infuriating as that's going to be we need to condition people that that could be the case and they need to be prepared of course the way to avoid that is vote by mail and vote early and accurately or vote early in person but some people are going to vote on election day of course and we want to make sure that uh, they stay in line if they show up so you know i think we we enter this with a, a race that's been remarkably stable And so one question will be, uh, is there anything that changes that dynamic? And there are some things that can do that, and we'll talk about that on today's episode. Uh, But if the race remains stable, really the only thing that could affect the outcome is one side having a lot more of their votes count compared to the other. And again, I think that's probably the thing that's in most of of our control. Uh, The average citizen uh, is to make sure our vote and those of people we have influence on um, counts. So I'm excited to talk to David Axelrod today. Uh, David really needs no introduction. Uh, He's now a commentator uh, on CNN. I'm sure all of you see him uh, with great frequency. He's running the Institute of Politics at the University of Chicago. Uh, he was my business partner uh, for a long time in politics, but a close friend of mine. Uh, and and obviously he and I spent a lot of time in the bunker together on Barack Obama's U.S. Senate campaign way back in 03 and 04, and then his two presidential election campaigns. So I don't think there's anybody more astute in America today about messaging, about dynamics with voters, someone who's, who's really smart uh, about debates both in terms of how to prepare for them and strategically what you're trying to get out of them, what your opponent's trying to do. And of course, David, also with uh, Mike Murphy, hosts the great podcast Hacks on Tap. Uh, folks like Robert Gibbs and, and John Heilman appear on that regularly. I've been on a couple of times and, and there's no two smarter people about politics. They're also just a lot of fun and have a great sense of humor. So I always enjoy listening to Hacks on Tap. So I think this will be a great conversation with David Axelrod. David Aksarod, I hesitated having you on the program again just because the Cubs and White Sox are both in first place, and I'm not sure I could take your gloating. I know, man. It's I, My wife told me this morning, you
1: were in such a better mood since baseball and basketball came back. And I must say, last night, I caught a bit of the Cubs, a bit of the White Sox, and the, uh, the Denver-Utah NBA game, and it does lift your spirits. It if, really does. Honestly,
0: yeah. Uh, Um, You know, I was conflicted about it, but I'm glad it's back. And uh, I feel less, you know, colleges, those kids aren't getting paid, right? Uh, But for the pros, particularly when they're doing these bubbles, I think the NBA's dealt with it really well. They have. They have. Yeah. No, it's good.
1: It's good. You know, sports, the world is so difficult right now, and there's so much tension and so much sadness. And uh, to be able to be passionate about something that ultimately means nothing uh, is really, it's a release You know, it's fun. It's, um, and, and, you know, so I, yeah, I'm, I'm glad it's back.
0: Well, my Phillies are showing some life. So if they end up playing the cubbies, we'll have to do like a soft pretzel deep dish bet.
1: Yeah, we should. Yeah. My big fear, David, is that, uh. We're going to have a subway series in Chicago, and nobody will be able to come. (laughs) (laughs) That would be like a big. That would be like a perfect Chicago story. After all these years, (laughs) a century, we've been waiting for this, and nobody can attend. But that would be a high class problem.
0: But think about the ratings; would be like eighty percent. They'd be all. Yeah, that's true. Crazy. That's true. Yeah. All right, so let's move from baseball to another sport, uh, this presidential campaign. Which does have more serious consequences. Yes. So I want to start, you know, 12 years ago, around this time, if I recall, early September, people remember that we won. We won by seven points nationally, 365 electoral votes. But this time, 12 years ago, if I remember, we were in the doghouse with everybody, right? Sarah Palin had been picked, and the rules hadn't come off yet, and polls were tightening, and people were threatening. It just reminds that, you know, campaigns are not static and i want to start with that this has been a very stable general election yeah uh, really since the spring and so i guess my question for you is do you envision that stability continuing or do you think we're in for some surprises here in terms of some volatility with the electorate and if so where would that come from
1: yeah you know i i think that has been the 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 uh the interesting thing about this is that the structure of this race really hasn't changed much uh, in months and months and months. Uh, you know, Trump's approval rating has uh, has uh, moved only within a very small range uh, from the beginning of his administration, uh, and it hasn't really changed now. You know, it's hovering around there in the 42% uh, range. Um, I... I don't, I I mean, there are certain sectors, right? I mean, obviously you can see from the conventions and particularly the Republican convention that, you know, suburban voters are a big target uh, for Trump. Uh, And the other element of this is um, uh, who actually turns out uh, because their theory, as you know, is that and there's some, some evidence to support this, that the biggest untapped source of votes in particularly these upper Midwestern states that were so pivotal to, pivotal to him last time uh, are non-college whites, and that if he can get them off the bench and in the game, he can sort of change the, the, uh, the, the, the architecture of the vote in those states. Um, but, you know, I I always expected this to tighten some because we're such a tribal, we're such a politically tribal country right now. I expected that, you know, some, some laggard, uh, Republicans would come, come home to him. Some independent leading Republicans would come home to him. But I honestly, I don't know that this, you know, I don't think that you know, you mentioned we won a landslide and it was seven points. Uh, I don't think that uh, Joe Biden's going to surpass that or, you know, I think we're, we're we're trading within a band here. But I also I think I think the structure is pretty set. And unless Trump can change the nature of the electorate, A, or B, voting is so screwed up uh, that that changes in some of these battleground states. And that concerns me, you know, from a Biden perspective, that would concern me. Those two things could change things. But I I don't think this thing is going to bounce around much. And we should point out, David, that in 2008, and I remember this well, and you remember we sat in my office, our office, uh, you know, our business office in— On Franklin Street. On September 14th. And the reason I remember it was the next day Lehman Brothers collapsed. And you'll remember Senator Obama— Telling us that day that something was going to happen overnight, that Hank Paulson told him about, that he couldn't share it with us, but that it was going to have a really, really powerful impact on the race. And he cautioned us, to his credit, he said, "You know, I don't want to. I don't want to play around with this." I told Paulson we'd cooperate as much as we could. Uh, and sometimes good, good government is good politics. This is one of those times. I'll never forget that. But the race, we had left the art convention six points ahead. And the race had dwindled down to one or two after his convention and Palin. But, you know, there wasn't that much volatility to that race either. The American electorate is very uh, structured right now. Yeah.
0: So there's not a lot of room for massive shifts. So let's talk a little bit of, uh, you know, you mentioned suburbs. What's interesting about this is Trump, I think, got the message that he's hemorrhaging support in the suburbs. Of course, his inelegant response is to simply say Biden will eliminate them. <laughs> right? Yeah. Uh, well, and the other element by uh,
1: by eliminating him, he means you will be you will have bands of marauding black people on your
0: doorstep. Yes, that is it, I mean, it, it is not real subtle. Yeah. It's very racial. Yeah, you, you left out MS-13, yeah. So uh, I want to, so the suburban, you mentioned non-college, white suburban, of course, um, there's people over 65 years old in both of those categories. And yes. one of the things I must admit, um, I knew Biden would have some strength there, but I'm surprised at how resilient and strong his numbers have been. I mean, he's winning voters over 65, and I yes. think very narrowly behind Trump with white voters over 65. We lost yes. him by 22 points or whatever in 08. So... What's your uh, analysis there? I mean, do you think that stability can also—and uh, that's the you know the segment of the electorate where whether they're voting by mail or in person, there's less volatility on whether they're going to vote or not.
1: Yeah. You know, uh, I do think COVID has had an impact there. First of all, Biden did well. If you look back at the primaries, this was always a source of strength to him. Right. He always did very, very well among voters over 65. I mean, part of it is that he's older himself. Part of it is, you know, culturally, I mean, this is Trump's big problem. Biden is culturally uh, inconvenient. You know, he's an older, white, working class, Catholic guy from the industrial heartland, from a working class background. And it's very hard to caricature him in ways that Trump would like to caricature the Democrat nominee. I think he's also a reassuring figure. To older voters, uh, and so that that is there. That what that was there before COVID, but you know Trump's casual approach to the to the pandemic, and his his seeming suggestion that uh, I mean his inference that well young people are going to be fine in this, and the flip side of it is well what about all the people who aren't young, who aren't fine in it, and I just think his the chaos surrounding him and his handling of this virus is, uh, is, is a disincentive to people who are, the primary, who are at primary risk from the virus. And uh, so, you know, just generally, David, before all of this, I think people were willing, there were a lot of people willing to say, you know, Trump's kind of an asshole. He's a jerk. I don't like him. I don't like the way he behaves. I don't want my kids to be like that. I don't like the Twitter stuff, but things are pretty good. economy is good. You know, he's kicking a few people in the ass who deserve it. Uh, And so, you know, I'll put up with that. Now the cost of his personality, the cost of his idiosyncrasies is becoming very clear to people. And that's what a crisis will do. And now we have overlapping crises. I think these older people sense that. Uh, And I think Biden has done a very good job of offering reassurance uh, in the language that he uses and his response on Monday, uh, you know, to the, to the, uh, to the Trump uh, violence uh, scaremongering uh, was, I thought, very, very good. And if you, you know, I think to particularly an older voter when Biden says, look at me, do I look like a radical left- Guy who wants to coddle
0: mobs right well, you know, I thought that's very effective and I'm sure you saw it today They're turning that into a television spot uh, a place where you can yes. still reach older voters and they're running it all yes. over uh, The country well, this is ne- totally necessary because as you know,
1: one hit uh, Can be like a tree falling in the woods. It could be a big that was a big tree and you know More people probably heard it than 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 normal because it got a lot of coverage but Trump is going to keep this drumbeat going. And, you know, I, I'm, I'm of the belief that you can turn it on him uh, in a big way, uh, it, you know, through jujitsu, take his negative energy and use it against him. And uh, as an example of why we just can't afford him. And uh, that's what that's a danger for Trump here, because I think Biden's doing a pretty good job of doing that right now.
0: Yeah, I very much agree with that. So uh, you you probably know this, David, better than anyone in the country, but incumbent reelection campaigns are very different. Uh, than a challenger race. Yes. You and I have been through a few. So uh, just look, I remember back, you know, we, you and I did a lot of work together back in 2004 in the Bush Kerry race, and voters were still, even those that were inclined to be open to an alternative, they wanted to hear what George Bush had to say about both his record and what he'd do. Uh, fortunately, same thing in 2012 with Barack Obama, 2002, 10 with Deval Patrick in Massachusetts during a very tough reelection. The, it seems like maybe for Trump, and, and this is a problem because he's out there so much. Uh, is enough people who will decide this election have sort of tuned him out. And he seems like all of his tweets and his statements and his interviews, they're just reinforcing the chaos you mentioned. Kind of, is there a way for him to get heard or to hit refresh? I mean, it doesn't seem like it's part of his toolbox, but what's your view on that? No, well, I think that's the problem. You know, look, I, first of all, I think Trump could have
1: sealed reelection if he had begun if he had be right from the beginning of this virus behaved as many governors did, uh, taking advice from public health experts, leveling with people about the magnitude of the challenge, uh, and, um, down, downplaying, you know, not using every, um, every appearance as a way to kind of spin, uh, your accomplishments up on the virus, which were, you know, which which were not true, uh, you know. But that but that's not who he is, you know. He just can't get to where he needs to get. And I, I you know, there he has one basic play, which is to try and destroy the opponent. And uh, fear is a very big part of it. You know, this very much reminds me right now of the run up to the midterm elections in two thousand eighteen, when you remember the caravan oh yeah the caravan yeah the caravan was his and it was very much aimed at some of the same voters uh and uh and it and he failed what he did succeed in doing was stirring up a bunch of white supremacist domestic terrorism uh and you know i fear that we're seeing a repeat of that but um you know that is what he's going to do what he should do you know, look, I think the argument I would make if I was his strategist, if if I were his strategist, I would key very heavily to the narrative that they they have used in some to some uh, effect, but not nearly as enough, in my view, is, is to say, look, we 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 had a good thing going. We got blindsided, you know, by this virus, as the world did. And um we're going to come out of this. And you got to ask yourself, who's going to get this economy moving? Who's going to? Who's the guy who really knows how to uh, run an economy and put people back to work and so on? Now, look, I, I think that there are a lot of responses to that. But that, you know, just looking at the research, uh, that is the most credible argument he could make. I'm running because I want to bring this I want to bring this country back. I want to get back to, you know, to, to growing and I want to get back to jobs. And I want to. Uh, but, you know, he he is so he is completely consumed by these darker arguments um, that I think that that have power. I mean, never underestimate the power of race, but you know, it's like plutonium. You know, if you handle it properly, it can help you. If you handle it injudiciously, you can blow yourself up.
0: I think he may be on the way to blowing himself up. Absolutely. So, David, talk about, um, you know, now polls aren't votes. And, you know, the yes. polls may be once again not entirely accurate. And they don't affect uh, account really for turnout dynamics. And that's especially important in pandemic. But tell people that, you know, so, so, you know, Hillary was ahead in a bunch of battlegrounds in some of the polls. You know, let's say it'd be 46-42. And, and the difference between that and being up like 51-44, 51-43, I mean, it's yeah. like two different races. T- tell people why that's important, um, that it's not really, for me, the size of the lead. It's kind of the, the relative positions in terms of that firm vote total. In Hillary's case in particular, you know, she was a
1: quasi-incumbent uh and she was viewed that way. And if you're the incumbent or a quasi-incumbent and you can't get uh near or to fifty percent of the vote, uh that is a big problem because people have probably made a judgment about you. Uh and uh they're not you know, the break the the the, the break is not likely to come uh in favor of the incumbent. What's interesting about this race is that Trump is the incumbent and I think he suffers from some of those same problems. As you point out, people's views of him are so formed by now uh, that it's very hard to give them information, give people information that would, you know, surprise them uh, about him. But Uh, but he also is running, he, he continues to want to be the candidate, you know, the change guy, the guy who's kicking the establishment in the ass and so on. Uh, so he's running as the candidate of change, even as he is the incumbent, which might work better if you weren't the incumbent in the middle of a pandemic, when people actually need you to do your job. Uh, I think that makes it more complicated for him, but you always want to be up, uh, by near 50 uh and you know the question for trump is there are no there there's really there are negligible third-party options here unlike four years ago when they got significant votes in these battleground states the two third-party candidates so the threshold is higher for trump and you know if you've got people who uh if you're uh, negative rating is in the fifties, and a lot of that is very unfavorable.
0: Almost fifty percent of the country is very unfavorable. Yeah. On yeah. Top. So
1: the the equation for him is how do you now? It's less. It's probably better in the battlegrounds, but not great. Uh, how do you get to where you need to go? And I think his conclusion is: I have to utterly destroy the other guy uh, because I'm probably not going to persuade them of my virtues. Uh, you know after all this time between now and november and you know the problem they've had is they have tried out a lot of different approaches to destroying biden but because of this issue that i because of this quality of his that i mentioned that he's he's sort of culturally inconvenient uh for trump they've had a really hard time and and the pandemic you know, it made it difficult. You, you know, in 2012, and I have a lot of respect for now Senator Mitt Romney, but we were running against him. And, you know, we knew that um, if, if we didn't define him in the race by the convention, that uh, things would be more uncertain. And we spent, we backloaded money. Uh, we frontloaded money, I should say, and spent a lot of, th- Time on that project. That's what I think the Trump people wanted to do. They actually did spend a lot of money, but it was they didn't do. They just didn't damage Biden in the way that they had hoped, and that's why he's on to this next. You know the 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 uh, you know the 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 law and order campaign because he's improvising and trying to find some way uh, to to drag Biden down because he knows there's a place to which he can't go number wise here. So,, um, so yeah, these polls, I mean, the most encouraging part about these polls are, is where Biden is sitting. and also, you know, when you put together Trump's approval with his um, with his vote, you know, how he gets to the number he needs, it's hard to get there unless he succeeds in doing. What we said earlier, unless he succeeds in bringing, you know, hundreds of thousands in these battleground states, hundreds of thousands of new voters in who are uh, more akin to
0: him. Which I think is still a concern and why, you know, I think not just like rah-rah motivational speech, like Democrats should assume that Trump's going to overperform these polls because he's going to likely drive big turnout. I mean, it's not inconceivable, you know, now part of this was to your point, he won Wisconsin with 47.2 or 47.4 because of third party, but you know, he got a million, votes. It's not inconceivable he could get that up to a So, David, I want to spend some time on the debates, but... Let's just talk about the rhythm of the campaign now that we're uh, past the convention. So Biden seems to be picking up the pace of his appearances. Uh, You you mentioned a speech in Western Pennsylvania Monday. We're talking on on Wednesday uh, the 2nd. He's giving a speech about schools and and reopening. Uh, He's going to Kenosha with Jill Biden on Thursday. Um, That, you know, kind of what's your sense of the pace? Because I think Biden has benefited to some degree because, you know, Trump's, you know, manic energy and being everywhere, again, I think doesn't really help him. Um, And I think Biden comes across as the safe, competent choice. He had a good convention. But it seems like now you are going to have to be more out there uh, and in the rhythm of this thing. Now, when you and I went through this, you're doing you know three time zones and six stops a day. So it, it's not that yeah, type of thing. Don't have to right. do that. But yeah. it seems to me, what's your sense of the right rhythm here on the Biden side?
1: Yeah, no, look, I, I think you're right. I, he he actually benefited from being uh, relatively uh, uh, cloistered during the last few months um because he could pick his spots, but basically he surrendered the spotlight to Trump, and people didn't like what they saw. And that was to his benefit. But at this point in the campaign, uh, where the coverage is so intense, people's interest is really beginning to focus, you need to be in the mix every day, and you need to be out there uh, creating, you know, creating uh, copy and creating an opportunity for coverage. Um, it doesn't have to be, it, you know, it, it, it can be one event. It doesn't have to be four or five or six. Um, you know, it can be very scaled down and it has to be, but there is no, you know, this there, you can't spend the next two months, uh, operating from home as you did, uh, the last many months. And it's clear they understand that. I think they're being careful, uh, about him and about others, uh, as they should be, but they have to strike a balance. Between um, visible engagement and uh, and safety, and 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 he proved on when on Monday with that speech, which I thought was really resonant. Really thought it was a, a, a great speech. That you know, one good event, and you're you're golden. Uh, so
0: I expect we're going to see more of that. Right, one good event, and then obviously you have digital collateral and, and advertisements. Exactly. Uh, I'm curious. the other The other benefit I think of of intensifying this is uh, it will cause Trump to react. He can't help himself. I mean, yeah. I, I'll be very interested to see what Trump does tomorrow uh, on Thursday when the Bidens are in Kenosha. So talk about that dynamic. I mean, he is uh, uh, a child in that regard. It's it's not easy or it's not hard to bait him. And it no. seems like that as nor is it
1: hard to seduce him. I mean, you can right. be you, you can be a crazy white right-wing right wing domestic terrorist, but if you say nice things about Donald Trump, he'll say nice things about you. Yeah, you're exactly right. Yeah, so both sides are true, uh, but yeah, he's you know he clearly takes the bait. Um, but you know, here's the thing that I think Biden did well on Monday, and I really believe this is the key to dealing with Trump. And we'll get into the debates. I think it, it may be the key in the debates as well. You know, you don't you don't really benefit from getting into a pissing match with Donald Trump because he always comes with a larger tank, you know, Uh, but you you can and you do have to but you do have to uh, contend with him. And the best way to do it, you know, there's this martial art uh, jujitsu where that's basically that's based on the principle of using your opponent's negative uh, using your opponent's energy against him. Uh, and that's what Tr- uh, Biden did Monday. He used Trump's negative energy against him, and basically said, "Is this what the country needs? You know, uh, a a divisive, uh, craven, um, you know, a president who is more interested in dividing for personal gain than uh, bringing us together and solving these problems?" I think that uh, that what the more crazy trump becomes and you know if last weekend's tweets were any uh indication i think we're in for quite a tweet storm between now and november and however he behaves you need to take those things and make them examples in your case for change uh and biden did that well monday i hope he continues uh to do that i hope he does it in the debates I mean, the the question ultimately people need to ask themselves is, um, uh, you know, we always ask the question, are you better off than you were four years ago? That is a a tough question for Trump right
0: now. But the tougher one is, can we really do this for four more years? Right. Right. And that is a different question. It is a different uh, question. It's related but different, yeah. Well, it's hard for me to get the image of the big tank of urine out of my head. <laughs> let me, let, so let, let me – on the debate. So um, – it's funny, you know, people have to understand, I mean, I found, I found debate prep to be pretty miserable. I, I think you did. You know, it's hard. Yeah, uh, it's hard. You know, we we yeah. got to bowl, go bowling at Camp David. That was a nice interlude. But other than that, it, that was fun. And yeah, we was we fun. won, you know, five of the six and it was brutal. So they're no fun to get ready for. But let's talk about that first debate, which it just seems given the dynamics of this race, which is, I think a lot of people who Trump needs have tuned him out. Can he uh, change that dynamic? Biden's got a lot of people who are heavily leaning in his direction, but not completely sold. Seems like, you know, there's a lot of important business in that first debate. I don't want to suggest that the other two don't matter, but this seems to be far and away. No, but uh, but I'm with you, man. I think if you were going to circle one date on the
1: election calendar that may have the greatest impact on the election, it's September 29th that first debate for, uh, you know, you mentioned we, we won five of six. It's not an accident that the one we didn't win, uh, was, uh, the first debate in 2012, the history of presidents in first debates, you know, I had that thing circled. I think it was October 4th. I'm not sure, but I had it circled in red on my (laughs) calendar for months before that debate because, uh, because history is very clear. Presidents haven't debated for four years. They're not used to having someone, you know, six feet away who is in their grill and being treated as an equal. Uh, they tend to be very defensive about their records. And uh, it is, it is, you know, we, we, we were aware of it and we were trying to um, ensure that it didn't happen to us and it happened to us. Now, you know, maybe Trump can defy all that, but uh, and then so there's that. The second, the, 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 the reason this is important, though, is one of the underpinnings of Trump's argument, because he decided that he could not depict Joe Biden as a uh, radical left candidate. So he instead has depicted Biden as a, a adult tool of the radical left, a guy who doesn't have the mental acuity uh, to lead or or make decisions, so he'll default. He you know he'll weakly default to the left. It it is. I think that for Biden to seal the deal, um, he needs to show up on that debate stage, and he doesn't have to be great. He just has to be good and strong. And, yeah, and well, that's part of it. I mean, look, we, the, that I think his convention speech was a big step forward uh, because he was strong. And he looked like a president up there, <clears throat> and um, I think it was confidence building uh, for people. This debate, it, and it's and the first one is the one everyone's going to be watching. Um, if if Joe Biden handles Donald Trump and the debate well, uh, I think it's going to he'll take a long uh, a long step toward being president of the United States. You're you know you're you're younger than I am, but in 1980, uh, the country had pretty much decided that they wanted to fire Jimmy Carter, uh, but they were uncertain about Ronald Reagan, who who they feared may be too extreme, too trigger happy, could get us into a war. Uh, Reagan showed up at the one and only debate they had, which was a week before the election. And he was warm, he was genial. Um, and, uh, and he looked like he, he looked big, uh, and, um, that was it. The bottom dropped out. Uh, I'll be interested if, if Biden has a good debate, I'll be interested to see what happens in polling after that. I mean, there's not, as I said earlier, it won't be huge, huge shifts, but it could really firm a lot of things up for him. Right. I think that's what he needs is
0: solidification of this lead he has. Yeah. If you're sitting around 50 you don't really need to add, you need to solidify. Right. And and it's more important now just because I mean, you know, it was true in sixteen and twelve and eight there was people voting early, but now such a huge percentage of the population is going to be voting late September, early October. So it's not like you have to sustain that momentum for five weeks. You know, you yeah. you can cash in it right away.
1: Well, I want to ask you about that because I'm I mean if I I think that there are so many concerns about this voting issue. One, you know, will the post office function as it's supposed to um number two uh is you know um there was a a, a study recently Dave Wasserman the great reporter for Cook uh, wrote about this for NBC um th- that showed that the, the you know the 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 spoilage the the number of ballots thrown out among uh, mail-in uh, ballots is, significantly higher than ballots that are cast in person. So if half of Biden's vote is a mail-in vote and four percent of those ballots are discounted, uh, you know, that's two percent of the vote of his vote, you know, um, that could go uh elsewhere. I mean, I'm you're you're more of a you're more of an empiricist than I am, but I think I'm doing the math. Right. I mean, there's certainly if you've got marginal races in these battleground states and a high percent or a higher percentage of mail-in ballots are discounted, that seems to me to prejudice against
0: Biden. Yes. Well, it's why you want to go into this with a lead, because, yeah, if if this race ends up being as close as it was in 16, that will cost him. And so, yeah, to me, listen, as you know, every part of a campaign is important. But I think the two most important things, if you had to really narrow it down to that is, one, that first debate on September 29th, I agree with you. Uh, And then secondly, just the voter education that needs to happen. Just, you know, this is less about getting somebody to vote for you than it is just making sure that vote counts. Yeah. Uh, and because there's a patchwork of rules across the country, you know, it's not one message. And so, uh, you know, this falls on the news media, on the average citizen, on the Biden campaign, on Senate campaigns. But there needs to be more time and money spent on that. A lot of educational video on do you need postage and where do you put it? How do you mark your choice? Where do you sign? Right. Uh, there's no there's no question. No, I mean, there's some statistics that show in these June primaries. Um, Voters under 30, 10 percent of their ballots were spoiled because they're just not used to voting by mail. So it's a huge concern. And then the post office, you know, the inspector general of the Postal Service just had a report out this week saying there was a million absentee ballots sent late for the primaries. So, um, you know, I think everyone just needs to be informed and do everything earlier than they imagine. But yeah, that's why we should be, you know, no matter what happens in that first debate and where the polls show, I think we're all going to be nervous till we start seeing votes impacted.
1: Wait, wait, one thing I want to say about the debate, because we ought to acknowledge the converse of what we said, which is, you know, if Biden has a bad debate, uh, that adds an element of uncertainty uh, here. And, you know, that's what the Trump team is counting on. You know, one Republican told me, "Hey, we're three good debates and a vaccine away from winning this thing." <laughs> and there is some plausibility to uh, the idea that if if Trump if Trump uh, you know pushes Biden all over the field on September 29th and Biden doesn't, you know, I, I don't anticipate that. I really don't. But um, that is that is you ask, how does Trump recover? Uh, I imagine that is central to, to his yeah. theory of how he recovers, which by the way, puts a lot of pressure
0: on him. Huge. Yeah. Well, let's talk about that. So I think if Biden has a, and I agree with you, he doesn't have to be great, but a very good debate on the 29th. I think a lot of the um, elements of this race uh, get more uh, firmly established. Uh, if he doesn't, if if Trump has a, you know, very good debate performance on the 29th and, and Biden struggles, do you think that, I mean, for us in 12, as you remember, basically voters put us on probation. Uh, they were then interested in that second debate. Same thing with George W. Bush, where John Kerry had a very good first debate in 04. Uh, do you think that Biden would have an opportunity then, in, since he's the challenger in, in debates two and three, to make up for a, a faulty debate one? You know, I think I think debate one is going to have,
1: um, have outsized importance. Um, my concern about that it, as you know, uh, we had a bad debate in two thousand and twelve, and as as cool and as uh, smart and commanding as Barack Obama was, there was a ton of pressure on him going into that second debate. And it wasn't like a smooth path to that debate. Oh God, yeah, we and, were <laughs> you know, there's a lot of anxiety. He was um inconsistent in his performances, knowing that a lot was riding on that second debate. So, you know, the the one of the challenges is if you perform poorly in the first debate, how does that work on you psychologically? And um it's harder to come back if, you know, then all the pressure is on you. Uh and so, you know, you, you don't want to be you don't want to be in that uh position. Reagan in 2000 in in 2 in 1984 by the way had a poor first debate in keeping with the the thing I said earlier. Um, And it started people talking about whether the old man had lost it. Uh, And he came back in the second debate. And you'll remember, because it's one of the most famous debate lines in politics. uh, They asked about, should age be an issue? And Reagan said, "Uh, I'm not going to take advantage of my opponent's relative youth and inexperience. And, uh, and he, you know, he pulled it off really well. Uh, and Mondale said after he knew the race was over at that moment. Uh, but you know, it's hard. Reagan was an actor, uh, and deli- you know, was confident in delivering lines. And uh, you know, so you know, for for the Bi- from Biden's standpoint, you don't want to be in the position where you have to try and salvage something in a second debate because you didn't do well in the first debate.
0: And so much that you mentioned, you know, the reasons incumbents have challenges, uh, you know, they, they want to defend their record. They haven't been challenged, at least in that regard, for a long time. Um, but also it's, you know, I think no, whether it's Bush, Obama, even Reagan, who was a performer, you know, that's the last thing they wanted to do. I'll never forget, you know, we had a little ritual before presidential yeah. debates where you and I would, you know, do some fist bumps with Obama, a little locker room prep talk. Remember, his his parting words to us was kind of annoyed. Let's just get this over with. <laughs> yeah, right, right. we went out into the hallway and said <laughs> we're, we're, doomed. we're doomed yeah we're doomed <laughs> it was pretty <laughs> but the yeah. second
1: debate the second debate we went in and and he said to us I just want you guys to know we're going to have a good night yeah and and he and he totally delivered and yeah. uh you know but the psychology of those two locker rooms were completely uh were completely different so uh by the way you know Pelosi says you know, who 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 I think is a uh, is is a genius uh, in in so many ways at politics, but she said publicly she didn't think that Biden should debate trump. I honestly I honestly don't know how one would not debate Trump. I think he has to kind of I think Biden has to clear that hurdle. Now well, the question for you, Pluff, is if he does well in that first debate and Trump is outrageous, uh, do you go through with the other two debates?
0: I think you have to. And mm-hmm. Trump may want to add others. I just think you do those too. I think Well, that you're not going to do. But listen, I think it's hard to shortcut the system, cheat the yeah. calendar in the primaries, not run through the tape here.
1: Especially because one of the real complaints about Trump is that he has absolutely no regard for rules, laws, norms, and institutions. These presidential debates are an institution. And by participating in them, you're showing respect for the system so I mean I agree with you I think he has to run through all of these uh but um but I I just thought I'd raise him
0: I think there'll be a lot of pressure on him from Democrats to do exactly, uh, you know, as you suggest in that question. Yeah. But now, so one question on the locker room, because I do think that is so important, just body language heading into these things. Like, I'm not sure where Trump will be, like, because he hasn't really taken the governing part of being president that seriously. Like, he may look forward to this. Uh, I, I don't know. Like, do you have any assessment? It's hard to get into that addled brain of his. But you have any like, is he going to be like a warrior who just can't wait to go after Joe Biden? I mean, what's your sense of that? You
1: know, he's a showman, David. Mm-hmm. He, he, you know, he's a performer. And um, I think that he will go up and perform. The thing is, he will perform as he is accustomed to performing. You know, he's a, he's a lounge act. Uh, you know, he's the Don Rickles of politics. And, um, you know, he will go up there and he will, uh, you know, try and uh, demean and slash. And, um, and, uh, and whether that plays well... You know, here's the thing about preparing for debates. One of the reasons we did poorly in the first debate in 2012 is that we were preparing for one Mitt Romney and another Mitt Romney showed up. I think the Mitt Romney that showed up was the more authentic Mitt Romney, not the Mitt Romney who had been sort of trying to make himself acceptable to a, de- a Republican party that had become more conservative than him. Uh, he turned up as the more moderate guy who had been the governor of Massachusetts. And... Um, it was a very pronounced shift in strategy. And, you know, we, we we didn't really properly prepare for it. And Obama didn't make the adjustment on the stage. And you really don't want your candidate having to make that kind of adjustment on the stage, because the way you prepare for debates is to anticipate everything that's going to happen and know how you're going to respond to it. And, um, uh, so in that sense, Trump is a great opponent to debate because it's not like he's going to change his personality. It's not like he's going to change his approach. Uh, you know, he basically auditions his lines on Twitter every day, Right. You know, auditions his lines in every interaction with the media. And, you know, it's not like he's got some surprise. Uh, you know, there may be some surprise within the range of what he does, but, you know who Donald Trump is, you know what he's going to say, you know what his basic lines of attack are, you know what his uh, bullying kind of approach is. And so they have the advantage of being able to prepare for someone who is, they they know who's going to show up. Right. And, you know, the question is whether, you know, whether Biden internalizes all of that and knows how he's going to react to different kinds of provocations uh, and lines he's gonna land. I'll tell you that line when he said, look at me, do I look like a, a radical left uh, you know, <laughs> mob coddling guy? That that was a really well delivered line. If he had delivered that on a debate stage, yeah, uh, that would have been
0: one of the takeaways from the debate. Right. So he needs a few things like that. Exactly. Well, the other reason I think we uh, screwed up that first debate in 2012 was we're getting into a lot of self-flagellating. Well, no, but it's important. Was (laughs) you know I I think right. Uh, I'm more than happy to do it. So Romney kind of showed up like you know Rocky, you know, uh, fighting Southpaw when we were expecting uh, you know the other. Well, I guess Rocky was a Southpaw, but he fought the other way. So um, was if you recall, like you know, we were in a really good place in that race. It was post 47 percent common by yeah, Romney we were unduly and so high. yeah right and so remember we we're like well listen um, we want to get our licks in but you know we really have to convince people um, what your second term agenda is you need to be likable right. of course now of course Obama yeah. wanted to defend the iPad and other things too much <laughs> yeah exactly but, yes. but I think the lesson there for Biden is you know you can't leave anything on the floor like I don't think we told Obama like if you don't say the 47 percent thing three times like don't even bother coming back no. but yeah. you know could we assumed he'd do it but I, I think we weren't aggressive enough as well like you have to prosecute your case so that's the other thing with Biden is of course he wants to let people know what he's going to do and yes I think the jury's largely out on Trump but you can't leave any of your greatest hits behind right you just got to really go in forcefully
1: yeah I mean it's just a question of how you deliver them right right, I mean you know what's going to come you can't ignore it the question is you know if it becomes like two uh, two uh, high school kids you know uh, in a brawl in the parking lot probably doesn't doesn't do biden all that much no good. exactly but, so you know the counter punching the ju- the jujitsu there are times when he's going to have to confront trump uh you know uh frontally uh, but you need to you need to understand where you want to do that and where you want to counter and where you want to just hold a, it up as an example to the country of this is this is so familiar to all of us this is the donald trump we've seen for four years you know, and and pose the question as to whether people want to, whether they think that's what we need um, moving forward. So, you know, there are, there's going to be, there are gonna be, you, you just need to decide how much frontal combat you do and how much deflection into sort of uh, jujitsu you do.
0: Right. No, there's an art to that. And I think, you know, using some humor, some mockery, the other benefit of that is it could really destabilize Trump. So, Axe, a question for you, um, You know, I think if Biden were to clearly be the winner in Florida, uh, which counts its absentee ballots uh, ahead of time, Arizona does as well. Now, we saw in a close race, it can take some time uh, with the cinema McSally race. But if you were to win Arizona, I think it's clear. But in a scenario where that's not the case, and, you know, if it is true uh, that Trump wins election night but loses the election— this is, you know, uh, I mean, some of this falls on the Biden campaign, Democrats in Congress, those Republicans that believe, the few of them, you know, kind of in our in our uh, institutions, the media. How do we need to prepare the country for that? Now, we know Trump's going to do what he's going to do, but it seems like that's not an implausible scenario. Now, my answer would be just win by enough, you know, in enough places that it's clear that night. But in a scenario where this thing does get tight and we don't know who wins for seven or 10 days and Trump has a lead that gets eroded, like... I just love your views on that. Yeah, well, it, I, I'm
1: very, very concerned about it, uh, not for Biden, uh, but for the country, for our democracy. You know, Trump, Trump has um, systematically and repeatedly uh, sundered the institutions of our democracy. He, you know, frankly, like Putin, uh, seems uh, intent on undermining people's faith in democratic institutions and it seems like for months he's been setting up this scenario whereby you know i've always said that donald trump the words you will never hear him speak is the people have spoken and i accept their verdict that is unless the verdict is that he won right. he sees only two scenarios either he wins or the races was stolen and um the if the on election day his numbers look far better than they they will ultimately look because mail the more Democrats voted by mail and those get counted late, it creates an incredible opportunity for uh, malicious mischief uh, and depiction of the election as um, illegitimate. And I worry, I worry about you know crazy people in the streets, uh, I, and I worry about the long term impact on our democracy. And I believe that Trump will use that scenario as a stepping up point, uh, stepping off point for his next project, which will probably be running a, a resistance from some media outpost, OAN or something. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yeah, I think this is important. And it'd be important for, for Republican governors uh, and Democratic governors to sensitize people to this, uh, to lock arms and uh, not allow that to happen. It is, in the, it is not in the interest of either Republicans or Democrats to allow uh, the election to be uh, depicted as illegitimate. And It would be a disaster for our country. It would be a victory for Putin and others who wish ill for our country. And, we, you know, we just have to... We really need to work hard to make sure that doesn't happen. I do think what you said is absolutely right. You know, to me, the best hope of avoiding that is a um, is an early verdict from Florida, uh, which has a history of dealing with uh, mail-in ballots. Um, they do they incorporate that in their count, uh, and you know, you they could save the country a lot of grief by delivering a verdict. You know, if Biden's going to win, uh, if it'd be really helpful for the country, if Florida delivered a a verdict in his favor early, because I think the if that happens, I think the assumption's going to be that this you know the election's going Biden's way. If it doesn't happen, the scenario we talked about is very
0: much real. Well, and, you know, people talk about 2000, Florida, of course, played the central role there. But, you know, the truth is there was a lot of, uh, you know, mischief down in Florida, the Brooks Brothers lobbyists and whatnot. But, you know, the principles generally said the right thing, and that won't be the case this time. I think this will be one of the true tests the country's gone through if we're in that scenario. Um, and, And is your sense that in a scenario where we don't know who won that night, maybe Trump's ahead, Biden pulls ahead, do you think the institutions will stay intact and the act, and if Biden wins the election we don't have anything to worry about in terms of him getting sworn in as the 46th president
1: I don't think that we have to worry about him getting sworn in as the as the 46th president I think our institutions are strong enough to resist that um I do worry about you know even after the 2000 election when uh, George W Bush was deemed having been elected by 527 votes, I think it was, in, uh, you know, a margin of 527 in the state of Florida and honestly it was widely viewed as by a margin of five to four on the United States Supreme Court. Um, that, that really dogged him going into mm-hmm. his presidency. He only right. recovered after 9-11, right. but it really hobbled his ability to govern it. It robbed him of a transition. I mean, that's another thing we're not talking about here. Well there will never have been a presidential transition like this one because you can expect zero yeah zero cooperation you know when we uh, became uh, when when Barack Obama took over George W Bush could not have been more gracious to us in terms of you know like Ed Gillespie my counterpart invited me to the White House spent hours with me talking about his job how the White House works all of our counterparts did that on um uh, at the request of president bush president bush hosted a luncheon for president obama and all the former presidents uh, and you know the transition was smooth and and it wasn't because bush loved the things we said during that campaign we were pretty hard on him right it was because he saw himself as a trustee of the democracy and he saw this as his responsibility you know you can be sure that donald trump i think that you know They'll be uh, they'll be so consumed by shredding and burning and destroying of records, and um, you know I just don't think you're going to get a high level of cooperation in any in any way. And so this is going to hobble Biden. So you know Biden, if he gets elected, he's going to come to office, and we'll still be dealing with the virus in some form or fashion. We'll still be dealing with the economic overhang from the virus. We'll have uh, you know, to rebuild alliances in the world and uh, strengthen those institutions that are important to our security in the world, uh, and he has—he's going to he's gonna have to do that without benefit of the kind of transition that any president should have, and without—and—and without, and, and without benefit—and—and and with a a kind of governing structure within the government that 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 has been kind of uh, gutted by trump so he will this is real this could be really challenging yeah you know really really challenging for him and uh you know i uh, uh i think he's going to need a lot of a lot of uh, support uh from from the congress from from a, a good staff uh because it's going to be it's going to you know i always thought we had the worst hand any president has, has gotten since uh uh, Franklin Roosevelt, in terms of what we walked into in 2008, if Biden gets elected this year, his situation will be yeah more more challenging than the one Barack Obama faced.
0: Which I didn't think you know we'd say that in our lifetime, but it's no. true. just no. eight years later, there's no question. And,
1: and sadly, it isn't. It, it shouldn't have to be this way, but it is.
0: Well, that's another thing. Biden, for the rest of this campaign and those debates, I think can really continue to to you know just underline those stakes and his you know, he is uniquely prepared uh, and, and with a team of built around him to overcome all those obstacles. Right. So I think that's a really important point. Well, Axe, uh, as always, a pleasure to uh, to gab with you. Yeah, man. Let me just say
1: to you, to all your listeners that um, one of the great blessings of my life has been our partnership uh, in in business and in, in the campaign, in the business of campaigns, but uh, through the two Obama campaigns and the Obama years. You're the greatest campaign manager uh, of, of your generation. And, um, and uh, we all profited from it. And for me, our collaboration is uh, something that I really treasure. So um, always, always great to sit down with you.
0: Well, likewise, brother, you're the greatest strategist and and a great friend. And uh, you know the truth what I loved about you, Axe, is you know we we saw some hairy things, but uh, you know you brought a perspective and a gallows humor in addition to your sort of brilliance <laughs> to it all, and that's important. Like you know yeah. y- y- you you want to be in the foxhole with somebody like that. Well, I, I we,
1: we we had a lot of fun in that foxhole. There's no doubt about it. Yeah, and we also had the opportunity to work for you know the greatest talent of his generation. So. That, I always say people say, you know, people, you get this. You ought to get in there and help. Um, and uh, you guys, you know, you guys know how to do it. And I said, you know what? When people hand you the keys to a Maserati, uh, you look awfully good driving it. Yeah. Uh, and uh, we were very, very lucky.
0: Yeah, it was like being Ted Williams' hitting coach. Right? Yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> anyway, great to be with you, brother. All right, man. You too. Thanks. See you, bye.